The Truth of Poetry Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 7 Aeneas has to go to the underworld. The two tickets into the underworld, and I think they help define one another, are the Golden Bough and the burial of Messenus, who is the trumpeter of Aeneas, who has died and Aeneas didn't know about it. And the Sibyl says, you have to find the golden bough and you have to bury Messenus. I think these things help explain one another in light of the two engines of this poem, I think, the motive engines of this poem. One is, I guess we could call it just history, and the other is fame. Aeneas must go carry out some great historical project, and his payment for doing so is to be famous forever. And that's more or less the economy, the motive economy of the poem. Great historical things have to occur, and those who perform them become famous. That's their reward. Because if you think the underworld is a reward for anything, even the first-class cabin, this Elysium, is a, is a pretty shoddy place. So it's not. And the only people in Elysium are famous anyway. So that's the point. That's the motive economy of the poem. And Anchises is going to tell Aeneas about history and how important his work in history is going to be. And then the burial of Messenus has to do with another aspect of that, I would say. And that is that the tomb is the locus of the fame and glory and memory that somebody leaves. To be unburied is to disappear as soon as your body decomposes and to have no locale to prod human memory to do what it's supposed to do, namely, remember you. Now, there's a tremendous improvement in things that occurs once writing poetry happens, because poetry then becomes, even oral poetry, really, poetry becomes a kind of literary tomb. And the ancient poets all knew that. The ancient poets realized all we're here to do is to keep alive this glorious memory. We're here to do what the tombs do. And why is that so essential? It's so essential because that was the payoff. In order to get that payoff, one has to have some confidence that the promise the culture is making is one that it can fulfill. If the culture says, if you go do these things at great risk to life and limb, then you'll be remembered forever. And one looks around and doesn't see any way in which this culture is going to remember anything for more than 10 years. You think, well, I don't know. You see? So the culture has to be able to follow through. Tombs were one way, shrines, and the supreme way became, in the classical world, poetry. You would be remembered in song uh, for all these things. So that's very important. And Virgil's, obviously, he's a poet. He comes right out of that tradition. He's doing it in this poem. So the poem does an even more effective job than the tomb, but both of them exist to extend the historical horizon, to extend the historical horizon so that those who are given this great vocation to perform these great important deeds in history can with some confidence believe that their deeds will be remembered and therefore they will follow through with them, you see. And of course the question is, just how far can tombs and poems extend the historical horizon? Even if you take the best possible scenario you have a few thousand years. And is that enough? I think what's fundamentally haunting this poem in the middle of it is death. 
and everything that death represents. Because the whole poem is based on a historical hope. Historical in the sense of something like the Roman Empire on one hand, and secondly, something like the fame of those who contributed to it on the other. Fame being carried on in time, in human history. That premise is being haunted by death, and I think rightly so. An example of that is in the underworld, the Sibyl tells Polynurus that his burial site will henceforth be called Polynurus. And the text says, quote, These words have set his cares to rest. His sorrow is exiled for a while from his sad heart. The land that bears his name has made him glad. And a few pages later in the poem, at the beginning of book seven, you have the following. In death, you too, Aeneas's nurse, Caeta, Aeneas's nurse died and was buried uh, on the coast. So it says, In death you too, Aeneas's nurse, Caeta, have given to our coast unending fame. And now your honor still preserves your place of burial, if there be any glory in that. So the poem itself begins to give way a little bit. If there be any glory in that. And if there isn't any glory in that, then the whole scaffolding on which this poem is based, the, the logic of this poem begins to give way. Because after all, Aeneas is going into the underworld to have his father fire his soul with the love of coming glory. And if there is no glory in that, where are we? Now, I want to take a look at the golden bough. Virgil supplies us with a simile. Virgil's similes are pretty powerful things. And he packs a lot into them. And this simile is absolutely obvious because the golden bough is this yellow-looking thing hanging up in a tree that stands out from all the others and particularly stands out in the wintertime. And one thinks, well, it, what could that be? It's the mistletoe. Well, for Virgil, it, the simile is a mistletoe. He says, as in the winter's cold among the woods, the mistletoe, no seed of where it grows, in other words, it's a parasite on tree, is green with new leaves, girding the tapering stems with yellow fruit, just so the golden leaves seemed against the dark green ilex, or the holly tree, so in the gentle wind the thin gold leaf was crackling. Again, I think it's an indication that death is haunting this poem, because mistletoe was always something that had to do with death. Well, it's being used now to go into the land of the dead, but it, it has many, many references in myth and legend and literature and most of them have to do with the fact that it's there in the wintertime when all the other leaves have gone. So the tree is bare. A holly tree is an, is an exception to the rule because it doesn't lose its leaves. But most of the mistletoe references come from this fact that it somehow survives the death of winter intact. And therefore, it has some power over life and death, has a mysterious power. And Robert Brooks, I want to quote a couple of things. Robert Brooks has written some essays on the Aeneid said, and then tell a story. Brooks quotes another scholar, his name is Norden, and then makes a comment. He says, Norden remarks of the mistletoe that it seems to have a double aspect as a power of fertility, protection, and life, and as a power of death. It can heal disease and avert demons, but it can also kill the tree on which it grows. And then he quotes Norton again, Death and life in mythical thought are not always opposites, but can form a single unity. End quote. And then uh, Brooks says, 
This is crucial. When an object has enough magical power to represent life, in a sense to be life, this power can be expressed and used negatively as well to cause death, to be death. The power of life and death is a single reality. The golden bough, especially as assimilated to the mistletoe, has such a power. End quote. Now, I would say that the problem with that comment, it's a perfectly valid comment, is the problem is that it's vague and metaphysical, that it's not anthropological enough. Uh, is there something that's both life and death? Uh, what does it represent? Something that can give life or be death. Heraclitus says violence creates and destroys, etc. Is there something that can be both life and death? Brooks then says, the mistletoe simile is the dark and environmental aspect of Virgil's meaning connecting it with the secrets of the primitive mind. I think the mistletoe represents something like death as a ritual for warding off death. Death wards off death in the same way that the death of Polyneurus kept all the Trojans from dying. Death wards off death. And that's why we have to always have sacrifices. And that's why the, the author of the letter to Hebrews says, Jesus is the last sacrifice. You don't have to do it over and over and over and over anymore because the power has been broken. And I, I want to end on that. The power of death has been broken because I think unless the power of death is broken, this is the, ultimately what I want to get to, unless the power of death is broken, we are stuck inside the problem that Virgil's stuck in. And he has just begun to nibble at that problem and to squirm. But I think fundamentally, it's the problem that death represents. I have a little story that's not apropos really of what we're looking at here, but I was so fascinated by it. I went to it because it has to do with mistletoe, and then I read it, and I was totally fascinated by it. And so I'll share it with you. It, to some extent, has to... I'm, I'm going to make it have something to do with Virgil just because I want to share it with you. It's the story from Norse mythology of uh, Balder and Loki. Balder is a glorious god who's like gods in other uh, mythological traditions who are dazzling and radiant and beautiful and desired by everybody. His father is Odin, his mother is Frigga, and they learn that Balder is destined to have a very short life. And anxious about this, Frigga goes around and talks to everything in the universe, every stone, tree, living thing, and gets them all to agree not to harm Balder. She omits to have an interview with the mistletoe. Otherwise, she has all the bases covered. She comes back, and the assumption is Balder is now protected from anything. Now, get this, because we always have to ask ourselves, where do these myths come from? Do these myths have any grounding in human reality, in historical fact? They do. They're surrounded by a kind of mystification, but there is some grounding. Well, listen to this. The gods rejoiced to think that Balder was invulnerable and invented a game in which he was placed in the center of all the other gods, and everyone shot arrows at him, threw stones at him, and struck him with their weapons. You see? This is a mythological remembrance of what? You see? Oh, there you have it. Well, he, of course, remained unharmed, because he's a god, and he's totally protected, and so, and the game was a source of hilarious fun for them.
The evil god Loki was jealous of Baldr. And he saw an opportunity. He found out from Frigga that she had not had an interview with the mistletoe. So he went and got some mistletoe. And he came back. And the next time the game got started, he went over to Baldr's blind brother, Hodr, and he put the mistletoe in Hodr's hand, and he aimed the mistletoe. It's in Hodr's hand. This is the way in which in mythological, in, in the mythological imagination or in the mythological world, there's, there are all these ways of obscuring any kind of, you see, sort of covering one's tracks. So that in the end, it's very difficult to tell who did this thing. See? So he put the mistletoe in Hodor's hand, and then he aimed it for him, and heaved it, and lo and behold, a mistletoe, you know how, you know how lethal mistletoe can be. Balder just fell over dead. <laughs> you see? Well, we have to ask ourselves. I mean, we don't even have to ask. There it is. Uh, well, here, now, listen to this. Everybody was immediately wept bitterly because this was a very sad thing. I mean, after all, they were having all this fun shooting arrows, hitting, hitting with weapons, and throwing stones, and suddenly there's a corpse. Oh, can you imagine? And so, <laughs> and so they began to weep uh, uncontrollably. And they would have, and they came to know that Loki did it. And they would have killed Loki right there on the spot, except that spot, which just happened to be where Balder was laying dead, that spot was sacred. And you can't perform a violent deed on a sacred spot. So they couldn't kill Loki. In other words, violence occurred there. The god, quote-unquote god, died there. Therefore, no violence can ever occur there again. This is Satan casting out Satan. I mean, it's an amazing story, really. I have to force myself to get back to Virgil here. <laughs> but there is one little note on here that's semi-Virgilian, and that is that another brother of Balder, Hermon, goes to the underworld to see if he can negotiate with the goddess of the underworld to get Balder back to the land of the living. And she grudgingly says, yes, if you can get every living creature to weep for Balder. So... Uh, Hermon comes back and goes around and tries to get everybody. And lo and behold, everybody weeps except this one old giantess who refuses to weep, and it's Loki in disguise. And because there's one person who refuses to weep, he's stuck in the realm of the dead. And there's a little hint here of the power of universal acclaim in providing some kind of pagan resurrection but also the need for unanimity, the absolute need for unanimity. I mention it because it's totally fascinating to me once I started reading, but also because it shows that the role of mistletoe in these myths has to do with the use of death to get rid of death. It has something to do with that. Finally, when Aeneas finds the mistletoe, he's told by the Sibyl that the mistletoe, if he's do all these things that will lead to the founding of Rome, that the mistletoe will come off absolutely easily with no problem. And if it's, he's not faded, there's nothing he can do to take it off the tree. And when he reaches up to get it, it hesitates. It says, the text says, Aeneas reached up and broke the hesitating bow. And this again is the poem's undertow. It's Virgil expressing certain misgivings about what's going on. Nevertheless, Anchises 
inspired his son's soul with the love of coming glory, or at least that's what we're told. Whether Aeneas's soul is fired with the love of coming glory is hard to tell from reading the rest of the poem, but at least we're told that that's what happened. And then the last major undertow of this part of the poem is this. There are two gates of sleep, one that is said to be of horn. Through it, an easy exit is given to the true shades. The other is made of polished ivory, perfect glittering, but through that way the spirits send false dreams into the world above. And here Anchises, when he is done with words, accompanies the Sibyl and his son together and sends them through the gate of ivory, the gate of false dreams. It's the best he can do. I mean, this is, scholars argue about the implications of this. But as far as I'm concerned, and it's Virgil expressing some very strong misgivings about things, only the gate of false dreams. One almost thinks here of Ernest Becker. I don't know if you know Ernest Becker's denial of death. Uh, but you could say this exiting through the gate of false dreams the gate of ivory, is really the mainspring of Becker's uh, analysis of things. Sending Aeneas into the world of the living through the gate of ivory fits perfectly with this, this article that appeared on the op-ed page in the New York Times this morning. And it was an article uh, by Paul Rogat Loeb entitled, Still True to the Cause. And uh, Loeb is the author of a book entitled Generation at the Crossroad, Apathy and Action on the American Campus. As you can tell by that title, what he's looking into is how the social activism, political activism of the 60s uh, has waned or survived, one or the other. And this piece is about that. And I'm particularly interested in how it ends. It ends this way, quote, For citizen movements to succeed... They need to be able to pass the torch of commitment. This is as true today as it was for the civil rights movement, the struggle for women's suffrage, and the South African fight against apartheid. The best of today's young activists understand this. Consider Winston Willis, who headed Columbia University's black student organization, taught school in Harlem, and has returned for a doctorate at Emory University in Atlanta. His parents were involved in the civil rights movement, and at Columbia, he was influenced by other black student leaders. Quote, I gave a talk to Emory's black students, he told me recently, and pointed out that we're here not just because we're good students or on our intrinsic merits. We're literally here by the blood of our people. I'm only 27, but I'm beginning to come to grips with the reality that I probably won't see the fundamental changes I want when I'm still around. It helps to know that there are many folks before us and many more who will follow, end quote. Now, it may not strike you as being highly relevant to the situation, but I think it is. What he has come to realize is that this historical task is not going to be fulfilled in his lifetime. And then the question is, how do you keep up your enthusiasm. Well, you say to yourself, it's going to be fulfilled in history. And that's what the voice of Anchises is telling Aeneas. 
you see. It's going to be fulfilled in history. It's a way of reassuring oneself. And I respect it. There's a certain truth to it. The truth to it is that the paraclete, which is at the heart of all of these things, is at the heart of the civil rights movement, the movement for women's suffrage, the, the, uh, the fight against apartheid, etc. That's the paraclete at work. The truth is the paraclete is unstoppable. But that doesn't cash out in, into a certainty or even a reasonable probability that history will accomplish in any serious way the final version of these things. So one realizes suddenly that it's not going to happen in one's lifetime. And then one says, well, it's a, it's a historical struggle and it's going to happen down the road in history. And the question is, and it's absolutely the question in Virgil's poem, and that is, is that enough? Is that horizon, that historical horizon, which Mr. Willis here now has looked up from the, the decades of his own life onto his historical horizon, and he has shifted his hope from the immediate to the long term. And the question is, is that horizon that he's now looking at big enough and broad enough and expansive enough and promising enough to keep him and all the rest of us engaged in something or not? And I think it's not. I think it's simply, I think eventually that horizon won't be big enough. At that point, you get the apathy that is part of the subject matter of this op-ed page. So I want to come back to this question of, for Virgil, in a sense, he had to send Aeneas through the ivory gate. He had to talk about, well, it's going to be in history. It's going to be fulfilled in history. Obviously, it's not going to be fulfilled in your lifetime because your lifetime is just going to be one war after another. But in history, it'll be fulfilled. I would make one point which I don't make in a, in a quibbling or critical spirit, but I would make one point, and it's essentially the point that Arthur Ashe made in his biography, and that is that these movements that Mr. Willis is talking about were rooted fundamentally in the Christian church. And when they tap into that power, they are not tapping into a historical promise. They are tapping into an eschatological one. And you can't exhaust that one. Historical defeats can come one after another, and if you're rooted in eschatological promise, you don't throw in the towel. And that's a huge difference, because history is a meandering road. There are tremendous setbacks that occur in all these things. And so I would just say, fundamentally, the problem that Virgil comes up against, he doesn't have an eschatological horizon. All he has is a historical horizon. And the question is, can you keep your commitment? Can you go through all this with only a historical hope? And I think ultimately you can't. And the only reason we keep reviving it is because we keep producing a generation of people who are young enough and naive enough to think that it's going to happen in their lifetime. Now, I, that sounds a little like an old guy. I mean, but it's true. The point is, we don't want to lose this impulse. We don't. But if it's grounded only in a historical hope, it will eventually turn sour, turn cynical, 
apathy will set in, and so on. The paraclete doesn't rely on that. The paraclete relies on something grounded in an eschatological hope, which means a, a horizon that's outside of history, which Jesus called the kingdom. It's also in history, but the promise of it is outside of history. In Dante's Inferno, Canto 4, Dante and Virgil go into the portion of hell where the virtuous souls are being housed. I don't know how to describe it. It's a kind of a, I mean, it's a kind of a limbo existence. Virgil winces at it. I mean, it's certainly pleasant enough. It's like suburban life or something, but for Virgil, it's nothing. And he explains to Dante the situation in these words. We now are lost and punished with just this. We have no hope, and yet we live in longing. And for me, it is precisely this lack of something beyond the ordinary hope to keep hope going. The literal Italian is dicio. We desire without hope. We desire without hope. I, I chose Virgil because I wanted to make us aware of how liberating the New Testament is. And I find myself itching to get to the liberating part already. And uh, we still have a little way to go in, in Virgil. So I'm going to do a little of that today. I mentioned a conversation between Virgil and Dante in the Inferno in which Virgil says we have no hope and yet we live in longing. Right after that, Virgil tells Dante about the harrowing of hell. Now, the harrowing of hell is something that is in the Christian creed, and there's very little about it in the New Testament. Nevertheless, it is an idea that I think is a powerful one. You could say that if Virgil's depiction of Aeneas's descent into Hades is an example of the truth of poetry, classical poetry, that is to say, uh, a poetry in which another truth is breaking in on it, I think you could say that the harrowing of hell is an example of the poetry of truth, which is to say it is a poetic image, but it's one that is true. It tells a true story, not only a true story, but a story that is absolutely essential to Christianity and to Christian faith, and that is the key to our liberation. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. The idea of the harrowing of hell is, as you know, a pretty cloudy one. Nobody knows quite what it is. Uh, I mean, the idea is that Jesus went into the into the realm of the dead between the crucifixion and the resurrection and opened the place up. The point is, unlike Aeneas, Odysseus, Gilgamesh, etc., etc., all the mythological figures, Jesus, who was not a mythological figure, did not go into the underworld hat in hand, you see, trying to cut a deal so that maybe somebody could get out or to get some advice from somebody there, you know. He didn't do that. He went in and blew the doors off. That's exactly what it means. He blew the doors off, which means, A, nobody's there anymore unless they want to be. That's what I would say. Uh, unfortunately, there are probably plenty of people who want to be, but they're only there because they want to be. The doors are off. But beyond that, it means that the grip of death is broken. Now, it seems may seem strange to hear me talk that way after we've been talking about all these things that have to do with 
anthropology and history and so on. But I think they belong together. Because as Virgil's poem is demonstrating, almost painfully, <laughs> death will eventually compromise all of these historical hopes. And those who continue to entertain these hopes without some larger horizon, without an eschatological horizon, do so only because they continue to reissue through the gate of false dreams. And we need to realize that we don't have to do that anymore. The grip of death, the power of death, has been broken. And that's part of our faith. The theologian Hans von Balthasar said that the descent into hell or the harrowing of hell is the main Christian mystery of our time. And why is it the main Christian mystery of our time? One could say it's in some way the main Christian mystery of all time. Sebastian Moore, let me quote something Sebastian Moore said, which I think is absolutely astounding, as many of the things he says are. He says, quote, Death as ultimate horizon lets sin make as much sense as sin can make. In the biblical tradition, sin and death are connected. They are no doubt in a loop. <laughs> we tend to think of them connected in this way, which is more or less the way Paul expressed it. Sin leads to death. You see, The wages of sin is death. But we can also see it the other way around. Death leads to sin. That is to say, the grip of death, the power of death, the undermining power of death, the scoffing, mocking power of death. Ha, ha, ha. You think this is going someplace? Well, ha, ha, ha. That produces sin. I guess ultimately the question is, where is the realm of death? It's right here. If death is the ultimate specter, death is the ultimate arbiter. So, for example, we say, well, yeah, it looks like death's going to come before these hopes are fulfilled. Therefore, what am I going to do? I'm going to have hopes that will be fulfilled by others that come later. How much later? Well, a lot later. Eventually, death is sitting there mocking at all of that. Another thing Sebastian Moore says is that death is our God-displacer, our pseudo-God. To say death is our God-displacer, our pseudo-God, it reminds me of Martin Heidegger. You're not interested in Heidegger. I'm not interested in Heidegger. But one of the things that Heidegger does is he talks about the being unto death, that we are the being unto death. He fetishizes death, you see. It's a kind of radical existentialism to fetishize death. Death is this thing that's always there, this mysterious sacred presence that's always there, and everything must be done in the light of this specter that is there. And there's a kind of heroic preoccupation with death in Heidegger's thought. And it, as far as I'm concerned, he represents the final modern conclusion to the whole philosophical enterprise, which is nothing but the fascination with death. I shouldn't say that, of course. That's totally too simplistic. But anyway, there's some good deal of truth in it. The gospel is not fascinated by death. The gospel is essentially uninterested in death. Jesus lived beyond death. It doesn't mean that he accepted death stoically, like Socrates or something. No, it's much more real than that. But he lived beyond it. It didn't have an ultimate uh, grip on him. 
And in the Gospel of John, for example, the, what we call the raising of Lazarus, is Jesus coming upon a scene in which everybody is mourning and weeping, and Jesus gets angry, and the Greek verb means to snort with indignation. Now, why is he angry? His friend has died, and his two other friends are mourning his friend that has died, and the text says he snorted with anger. What does that mean? Does that mean that he doesn't think you should mourn the dead? Because it says, blessed are they that mourn, you see? No, it means that he saw them capitulating in the presence of death. He saw life being drained out of them because death as a specter was standing before them. He saw them cowering before death. And he saw that's a form of slavery. We must break it. And he said to them, okay, if, this, if it takes this, we'll do it. Take the stone away. He walks out, he says, and the words are very important theologically for John, unbind him and let him go. Jesus is ministering to Martha and Mary. He's not ministering to Lazarus. He's ministering to Martha and Mary. You, we have to be free of that. Let the dead bury the dead. That's absolutely radical. Let the dead bury the dead. We have to be free of death in order to come alive, really come alive. Just to go back to something in Virgil. In Virgil, fame outflanks death. That is to say, if I'm famous, I live on, and therefore my death, death, where is thy, well, not exactly where is thy sting, but <laughs> a little bit less stinging if I'm famous and live on for, the, for some period of time. Okay? So, death will have to, it, the grip of death has to be broken where it's most powerful. And where is it most powerful? It's most powerful where the one who dies, dies despised by everybody. That's death indeed. There's no outflanking it there. To die alone outside the city, despised by everybody, that's about it, don't you think? Okay, that's where death can be broken. You know, this is a little campy, but it's almost as though Jesus said, okay, let's set this situation up. This thing needs to be staged exactly right. Now, the powers of death, I want to have them arrayed in the best possible situation from their point of view. So let's have it be political authorities, the religious authorities, the crowd, outside the city, the most despicable form of execution, solemnly sanctioned by every institution in sight, applauded by the crowd. You see, the whole thing. In the, in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, it says that when that somebody is guilty of a capital offense, he must be hung on a tree. And this is such a, a terrible violation. You have to take the body down before dark because it, it pollutes the whole land. This terrible, it's the worst way, you see. And for the Romans, it was the worst form of execution. So here's so in my little crazy fantasy, I have just said, set it up. Set it up so that it's absolutely perfect from your point of view. And I'll meet you there, and I'll blow the whole thing apart. Uh, we, I mean, it's a ch that's a childlike fantasy almost, but we, have to, we almost have to get back to that to realize what that means. It means it's finished. The power of death has been broken. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says, Since all the children share the same blood and flesh, he too, Jesus, he too shared equally in it, so that by his death he could take away all the power of the devil 
who had the power over death and set free all of those who had been held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Who might that be? Every one of us. You see, that's just it. We don't even realize it. We don't even realize it. My wife Katie went to the Soviet Union in the mid-80s when it was still the Soviet Union. It was, it was unbelievable, the atmosphere. Even though Gorbachev had just come to power, it was long before things started to change. The fear that permeated that society was probably a fear that most people had accommodated to so thoroughly that moment to moment they were unaware of it. They were unaware that it was controlling their lives at any conscious level. But meanwhile, it was everywhere. And somebody coming in to it noticed right away it was just palpable. I suggest to you that is a very weak analogy for what it was when Jesus walked through his life in Palestine. He saw that the whole human race was cowering before this thing, which is death, and offering up sacrificial victims in the kind of apotropaic rite as a way of warding off death, a little bit of death, a little homeopathic dose of death, which would ward off death. Jesus walked through the world and saw this is what's going on. Everybody is cowering. And so he made an appointment with the forces of death and broke their power. And we should remember that because that's what it means to have been liberated. Dante describes the harrowing of hell. And, uh, you know, he goes through and he sees, my goodness, look at all these boulders have been turned over. The place is a wreck, in other words. <laughs> uh, and I would describe it with a, con with a contrast. If death is the haunting specter, then so much of what we do is done with that in mind. How to avoid it, how to placate it, how to somehow outlive it. You see, all of that, that's when Becker talks about the denial of death, it's all there. He's, in a sense, Becker is recognizing some of this too. So I wanted to compare two poems. One is Shelley's Ozymandias, which is a poem about Ramses II and this huge, uh, the, all these colossal statues, Ramses. Ramses was pharaoh in Egypt for a long, long time, and, he, and it was a, a time of great expanse for Egyptian power. And there are these huge colossal statues of Ramses everywhere, and he commissioned the, all these texts that talked about his great exploits, you know. So Ramses is a perfect classic example, and, and Shelley writes about Ramses. This is what we do, some little version of this is what we do when death is the specter that haunts our lives. Here's how the poem goes. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
the remnant of this project, which is somehow to survive death. And it's barren, sand-blown, you know. Compare that to Thomas Gray's elegy written in a country churchyard. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. Nor you, ye proud, impute to these the fault, if memory o'er their tomb no trophies raise. He's talking about people that everybody's forgotten. Can storied urn or animated bust back to its mansion call the fleeting breath? Can honor's voice provoke the silent dust or flattery soothe the dull, cold ear of death? Now, at this far in the poem, you think that this is part of this sort of existential despair. It's nothing but death, you know, but it's not. It goes on. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. That's really the faith. That's eschatological faith right there. It doesn't have to be recorded. It doesn't have to amount to anything. It's redemptive in and of itself. That's what the eschatological horizon makes possible. And then, far from the maddening crowd's ignoble strife, their sober wishes never learn to stray. Along the cool sequestered veil of life, they kept the noiseless tenor of their way. They didn't get caught up in it. And we want to know why, of course. And in the epitaph of the poem, which is dedicated to Grace's friend, Richard West, he says, He gave to misery all he had, a tear. He gained from heaven, t'was all he wished, a friend. No farther seek his merits to disclose, or draw his frailties from their dread abode, the bosom of his father and his God. The bosom of his father and his God. That's what these souls that Gray is thinking of in this churchyard, that's what they have seen on the horizon. And I think to be locked up in Virgil's poem for a few weeks should make us hungry for that kind of expanse that Virgil never knew. And he tried to create some facsimile of it out of history and fame. Ultimately, it won't wash. I was reminded of this by Thomas Gray's last line, that he resides in the bosom of his father and his God. James Allison, a friend of mine, in one of his books says, Heaven is a dwelling in the Father, which is only possible for those for whom death has come to be a non-definitive, non-toxic part of their story. How to have death become a non-definitive, non-toxic part of our story? I want to reflect back for a second on the young man that was quoted in the op-ed page this morning who wants to keep his hope alive, and I, I hope he does. I, I think we should all try to keep our hopes alive. Uh, but to do it on the basis of 
some promise that things are going to pan out in history, I think is not terribly reliable. So, let me just put it this way. Christianity and Christian faith have huge historical consequences, but not because they set out to improve the world. The historical effects are, you might say, the byproducts of Christianity's religious devotion. When those effects become the primary goal, whether for Christians or for the various and sundry humanist spin-offs of Christianity, the efforts on their behalf lose the eschatological perspective that makes them sustainable and a source of joy in good times and in bad. We almost have to go back and steep ourselves in pagan poetry in, in order to appreciate the liberation that is ours. Virgil is our superior in so many ways, maybe in all ways, but he, he lacked this one thing. This eschatological horizon that I've been talking about is on the other side of death. That's what gives it its power for us. So that let's say somebody is working to bring about racial equality or to feed the hungry or to take care of the sick or to you know, see, make the world better. And All these projects are going along and then you look up and, you, and if, what, what if somebody comes along in each of those cases and says, okay, I want to tell you a secret. 500 years from now, things are going to be worse than they are now. What do you do? If you don't have an eschatological horizon, I don't know, you know. If you do, it doesn't fade you in the least. Because it's not based on that kind of projection. It is in and of itself redemptive. It's not based on a historical expectation or hope. The irony or the paradox is that since it isn't based on a historical expectation or hope, it's far more likely to have real historical consequences. 